Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast on this very wet and windy Scottish day. I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace. It is the 21st of February, 2020. Yes, I am a day late in putting this podcast out because I've been traveling a lot this week. Just come back from Northern Ireland looking at amazing conservation project on a, well, what is a now a managed moor. Um, on an estate that just won the Gold Purdy Award. You're going to be hearing much more about that on the Modern Huntsman channels via social media and online and in the next issue of Modern Huntsman uh, because I'm writing a whole piece uh, about Purdy, the company, and the Purdy Awards and some of the Purdy Award winners. And I've learned a hell of a lot over the last few days. So I'm really looking forward to putting that piece together and getting that out there for everybody. Northern Shooting Show, Friday the 8th to the 9th of May 2020, Yorkshire Events Centre. Don't know what I'm talking about? You should. It is the first show of the year in the UK that we go to, and it's one of my favourite shows of the year, and it's only a few weeks away now. Uh, So go over to theshootingshow.co.uk to read all about it. Uh, We will be there. There's loads of amazing events happening at the show, um, talks and discussions and displays, as well as uh, pretty much every manufacturer you can possibly think of if you're into countryside gear, they will be there, which means that you can get your hands on stuff before you buy it. So head over to theshootingshow.co.uk and uh, we'll be there in a few weeks' time. We have a winner from our Guess the Sound competition two weeks ago, which is run in conjunction with our partners on this podcast, Modern Huntsman. So every two weeks, we send out the latest volume of Modern Huntsman to the winner of the Guess the Sound competition, which two weeks ago was a hippo. So congratulations to everybody who got it right, randomly selected from those who did. Uh, It was actually an email entry from Robert Mansell. So congratulations. And you even told us what some of the birds were singing in the background. So I think uh, even though this was randomly selected, going that one step further, telling us all the other sounds in the in the sound competition, you definitely deserve to win this. So get in contact with us again, Robert, once you hear your name has been shouted out on the show, and we will get a copy of Volume 4 out to you. Uh, we are currently working on Volume 5 right now, uh, which is, wow, there is some content in there that is just going to blow you away. I mean, I say that Every volume that comes out, uh, we've got an amazing team. When we've had an amazing team on every volume, uh, but we've sort of refined that and added new people as each volume has come out. And we've got an amazing team working to put this together right now. Uh, So I'm going to be focusing my attention on some stuff um, at home and a little bit of stuff abroad. If you haven't got your hands on Modern Huntsman yet, it is essential reading for every single person who listens to this podcast. So head over to modernhuntsman.com and you can read all about that. And if you want to dig 
into it a bit more and deep dive, we've done a number of podcasts with contributors in the past on this show, including the editor-in-chief, Tyler Sharp. So just look his name out in our back catalog of podcasts, and you can hear him talking about the vision and what Modern Huntsman is. Moving on from there, a massive, massive thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. It makes such a difference. And in fact, it is your Patreon support that has allowed me to go and record the latest couple of podcasts here at home, where I've had to drive and travel a bit um, to go and meet these fascinating people. So I thought what I'd do, and we've never done this before, is I'm going to give a shout out to every single person who's currently a Patreon, which is more than 20 now. Normally, we only give a shout out to our top tiers. Um, and so I hope that you're not feeling put out because everyone else's name is being mentioned. But I think as a one-off, you all deserve to have your names shouted out. So from the top, Andreas Apt, Andy Lawrence, Connor Brown, Courtney Braswell, Devin Strayton, Edward Keane, Jeff Kennedy, James Benjamin, Normandale, James Marchington, uh, Jens Haig, Lucy Clark, Matthew Nibb, Maxime Companion... Apologies if I've butchered your name. Uh, Nick Suffolk, Patrick Timmis, Richard Barker, Richard McNeil, Richard Stevens, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Sam Dean, Thomas Cameron, Toby Roberts, Tom McRaith, Zach Buckaloo. Another name which I may have butchered. I apologize. So thank you very much to all of you. If you would like to support the podcast and help us put these shows together, head over to the Pace Brothers on Patreon. So, to this week's show, I sat down with Dr. Rebecca Wade. She is the Senior Lecturer in Environmental Sciences at the University of Abertay, which is actually just down the road from where I edit and record the intros to this podcast. Uh, we met originally last year. Uh, she is also a trustee on the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, which you're going to hear about in this podcast as well. Uh, we talk about a wide spectrum of topics, uh, from fluvial processes, which I don't think we actually explained exactly what that was. Uh, I'm sure you could probably work it out from the context, but just for the avoidance of doubt, fluvial pro processes, broadly speaking, and this is a very simplified version, uh, are associated with the work of water, streams, rivers, waterways. So mostly all running water um, with regard to land transformation. So you can imagine how a river transforms land. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in this podcast. Uh, along with river restoration, flooding, incredibly topical right now, considering half of the UK is underwater, uh, aquatic conservation, uh, valuing ecosystem services, and uh, towards the end, we talk about how to promote women in STEM fields, which is science, technology, engineering, and maths, if you didn't know that, and also about her upcoming trip to Antarctica, and that is going to blow your mind. We talk about uh, quite a lot of uh, reports and links, including information on Homeward Bound, which is linked to her trip to Antarctica, which you'll hear all about, uh, and the Chuffed crowdfunding page as well. All of the links to everything, because uh, Rebecca was very kind and sent me a very long email with links to everything we had talked about. Uh, there's not room to put them all in the description of this podcast, but if you go over to thepacebrothers.com, uh, click podcast and find this podcast, all of the information will be there. Uh, so if there's any links that you wanted to click, that's the easy way to do it. But before we get into the show, of course, I need to give you the guess the sound for this week. I nearly forgot. So listen in. If you know what this sound is, 
contact us on the show podcast at paceproductionsuk.com pace underscore brothers on instagram uh, the pace brothers on facebook uh, you can follow me byron j pace on twitter and i will pull together all of the correct answers and pick a winner in two weeks time and you will receive the latest volume of modern huntsman so listen into this tell us what it is Okay, that's it. Enough from me. I hope that you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Rebecca Wade. Rebecca, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm sitting at the university that you teach in, in Dundee, and despite the fact I've driven past here many, many times over like 20 years, I have never actually seen this building. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed that we're not recording this in the either the Esk or the Clover, because that's kind of related to how we met through the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust. But anyway, we've got a room and we're going to talk about science and rivers and Antarctica. Welcome to the University of Aberdeen. <laughs> Thank you very much. How did you get involved in the, the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust? Because that's the that's the connection that has allowed this conversation to for us to have this conversation today. Okay, so a bit of context here. Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, or ERFT, was set up in 2006. I think I joined it one year later as a trustee, 2007. It's a charity focused on establishing best practice and to promote the health of aquatic ecosystems within our river catchments here. It's primarily focused on habitat improvement, but we also aim to advance public education in the understanding of these aquatic ecosystems and the need for their protection, conservation, and rehabilitation, which you're going to hear about in a little bit. If you want to read a little bit more about it, then visit eskriversangus.uk. You can find the link in the description for this podcast on the website if you go and locate the show. Well, it's a really wonderful story, actually, because um, I always really enjoy working with stakeholders and I love working on real world projects. And um, I met Marshall Halliday, who was the former director of the Esk Rivers Trust. Yes, the legend that is Marshall. Indeed. um, And he was always such a champion of working with higher education institutions, with bringing students into the projects understanding that not only they could get a value, but there could be value added for the trust, for the rivers, for the catchment by doing that. And so I took to him immediately because that's exactly the sort of person I love working with. And so um, I used to run a master's programme called Environmental Management, MSc, and um, we were always looking for projects for our our environmental management students uh, when they came to do their summer research project. So we started working in the North and the South Est catchment, looking at um, the effect of poaching by cattle who had access to the rivers and how that impacted on uh, riverbank erosion. Cattle poaching in this context refers specifically to the damage done by livestock to the grass or underlying soil. The concern for river management is primarily focused on the bank erosion and the silt deposits which might come from that. But according to cattlesite.com, there is also a serious economic concern for farmers. A single poaching event can reduce pasture growth in the following months by 20 to 40%. You're about to hear Rebecca talk about faecal coliforms. These originate in the intestines of warm-blooded animals. So in this case, we're specifically talking about cows. And as well as increasing potential bacterial load in waterways, aerobic decomposition can reduce oxygen levels if discharged into waterways. We've seen this in the past with the accidental 
uh, leak and discharging of slurry into waterways. And the downstream effect of this can be completely catastrophic for the aquatic system. And of course, it also has implications for public health. Also on the introduction of sediment and maybe even faecal coliforms and, and sort of agricultural pollutants into the rivers. And we were also looking at um, invasive species. So the... Um, non-native invasive species that were being found along the riverbank. So, so mainly flora? Yeah, exactly. So um, this was talking about giant hogweed or Himalayan balsam or Japanese knotwood, knotweed, um, which would be found on the riverbank. And the Esk Rivers Trust had, and the landowners had been interested to try and eradicate these non-native invasive species. So No, long-term listeners, you are not having deja vu. We did cover invasive species, flora and fauna in podcast 109 with Mark Perman Charles. So if you want to dig more into that, if you haven't heard it, or you want to refresh your memory, go back and check it out. In the process of doing that, because they're so invasive and they take up so much of the bank, they were concerned that if they were to eradicate great swathes of this um flora on the banks that actually they could destabilize the banks because they wouldn't, wouldn't then the be vegetated. Yeah. So what we did was we actually did a mapping project and we had to look at where some of the invasive species were and we also did some bank soil stability tests to see was this on the south ask i would have to look up, up towards, exactly i think it i think i remember yeah. i think it was up towards possibly up towards um certainly the erosion that we were talking about in the trust i think this is before you came on board mm. um with cattle mm -hmm. was up the river the yeah. the floodplain of the south because it's horrendous there so the um the cattle was more upstream and the um invasive species testing that we did was more downstream okay, yeah. Um, and so we did some mapping of where the invasive species were. And we also then had a look at, uh, we tested the bank stability of the soils where the um, invasive species had been treated. And I think they'd maybe been sprayed twice within the year, once at the beginning and once at the end okay. with, you know, appropriate, um, you know, treatment options. Um, and what we found really interestingly was that the bank stability wasn't um, deteriorated. So even though this foliage wasn't there mm -hmm. anymore you weren't ending up with instability in the bank. And that's because although the, the roots were dead, they were still in place. And so they were still um, serving the purpose of maintaining the, um, the root-stabilising um, character of the bank. Okay. And, and yet um, the surface was clear, so native species could then start coming in and, and colonising. Oh, so it was holding it together long enough yep. for the for other growth to come through even once it had been sprayed yeah, off. And that, that was hugely um, satisfying to find out because, of course, you don't want to do harm when you're trying to do good. So um, understanding what the different stages of these, um, you know, environmental treatments actually mm. give us. How, how was really testing the instability? What was the, the, the process? So we, was this one of your students that was doing this? <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Yes, it was. Um, this was actually a student called Sue Becker, uh, and the student working on the um, cattle poaching was um, a student called Mercedes. And so we were, um, with Sue, we were looking at the bank stability, and we actually used um, a 
physical strength um, equipment, which was called a penetrometer. And you literally have a... That's a such a cool name. I know. <laughs> you have a metre-long, sort of almost like a needle, that you press down into the soil. Okay. And you can press it down as far as you can until it meets some kind of obstacle that's going to stop it. Um, and as you're doing that, it measures the amount of pressure that is needed in order to... Um, push down oh, into okay. the soil. So you get an indication of the compaction of the soil. Mm -hmm. And then you can also take visual um, so estimates. It, so if it's like if a bank's broken off and fallen into the river, you, you had a way of measuring that as well? Yeah, so we could measure that physically in terms of just... Um, you know, being able to measure the, the areas that had um, failed. But what we could do with the penetrometer was measure, uh, was the compaction of the soil and the structure of the soil physically any different in the area that had been treated compared to the area that hadn't been treated? And so then we could do a comparative assessment. And what we found okay. was for similar bank areas with similar soil type that there wasn't any difference in terms of structure and And you had compaction. a very simple numerical yeah. um, comparison. It was just part of a master's project. I mean, yeah. it wasn't an extensive kind of published piece of, of scientific literature, but it was a really interesting... But still, you still learned a lot from that. Yeah, and it was the way... Because you're right, it is a very important question, and it is so true that uh, very often, and there's a lot of historical examples of, examples of this, where we have tried to do the right thing, which is normally correcting mistakes that we've made in the past, uh, we've inadvertently made things worse. Yeah. You know, whether that be by removing species that shouldn't be there or introducing species to correct other mistakes that we've made by reintroductions. There are many, many examples of us getting it very, very wrong when it comes to introducing non-native species, more often than not, to control some form of pest. The cane toad is the perfect example. In 1935, 102 toads travelled in two suitcases from Puerto Rico to Australia in an attempt to control the cane beetles destroying the sugarcane fields. Instead, they decided that there was more interesting food in other parts of the country, so they disappeared and wandered off into the wilderness somewhere, and today there's an estimated 1.5 billion of them, covering more than 386,000 square miles. Instead of them beating the pests that they were introduced for, they became a pest. But here's the big kicker. It's not just about what this abundance of cane toads is going to eat in terms of native species. They also secrete a deadly toxin from behind their eyes, which has enough venom in it to kill a large crocodile. So that means that anything that eats them is also going to die, and they reproduce at such a rate, along with their chemical defense system, that they have become the world's top 100 invasive species, spreading at a rate of 30 miles per year. If you want to read about a whole heap of other species that were introduced with incredibly bad consequences, I will stick a link in the show notes on thepacebrothers.com for this episode, and you can read about kudzu vines and harlequin ladybirds, all from an article in Engineering and Technology. Yeah. So I think that was on the Bervy, actually. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, the Bervy, which is um, our chairman Tom's favourite little river because it runs through his farm. <laughs> so that was a nice piece of work. And that was, my goodness, more than 10 years ago. Oh, wow, okay. So that was more than 10. I'm really racking my brain so to remember the details of this project. I how long you'd been sort of involved yeah. behind the scenes, yeah. as it were, within the work yeah. that was happening on the Trust. 
And so then um, I would say that was about 2010, 2011, okay. and we're now in 2020. And then subsequently, um, Marshall mentioned to me that they were doing a river restoration project on the Rottleburn. And that is a super exciting project. Not that the others aren't, but this was pretty landmark at the time, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I'd been working on river restoration in the States for three years before I came to work in uh, Aberté University. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'd been at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, so I'd been in Midwest, USA. I'd been working on low-gradient systems in urban and rural settings whereby we were looking at stream naturalisation and stream restoration to re-engage amongst other things uh, habitats for fish populations So when you say naturalisation just um, unpack that a little bit So um, I was working with Professor Bruce Rhodes who's still at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and he preferred the term naturalisation because restoration suggests that we're taking something back to a condition it was previously in um, which kind of has that preservation kind of context rather than a conservation kind of context which is about recognizing the current use and that's different from a historical use so a current land use recognizes humans interaction with that environment over the intervening period and the current and the future period and we felt that it might be more realistic to talk about naturalizing the system to reintroduce natural forms and processes rather than to talk about restoration which seems to be harking back to some kind of historical that's, form. That's fascinating and I think that's a mistake that we make a lot. Yeah so we, we really preferred the term naturalization and we, we, we caveat that term with this recognition that most environments are impacted have been impacted by human are currently impacted by by people, their use of the land, and will continue to be so. And really that's about a recognition that it's a it's a collaboration between nature and society and not some kind of pristine historical reference state that's very it's going to be very difficult to ever yeah. recreate. I, kind of, I think that gets lost in a lot of the conversations that we have today, whether that be in rivers or rewilding, which is a hot topic here, not just in, in the UK, but around the world is this idea of returning it to something that was in the past without truly recognizing the fact that we have changed the shape of the landscape so much and we are still going to exist in that landscape from this point forward unless somebody has some other you know, grand plan to remove us from it. So I, I, I like that term. I, I'd like to see that used you know, more widely in conservation schemes, naturalization. Well, I can share it. with you the paper that we oh, wrote that. On, on river restoration. Actually, we, we did a paper on... Um, restoration of a river in a Chicago suburb and um, uh, we defined there's several papers that define naturalization in the context we were using it so I'm very happy to share that yeah no I'll I'll do that and I'll put that in the link it's uh, another podcast guest and a friend of mine um, Jason Goldman who I actually mentioned to you earlier Uh, one of his big things is urban ecology in LA Um, so it's fascinating to see his take on you know urban wildlife and the same could be could be said of like river systems that run th- through urban centres, and it's not something that I've really concerned myself with or been particularly interested in because I have the privilege of living kind of in the middle of nowhere. And most of the time I spend out is on a hill or, you know, in I was going to say wild landscapes, but landscapes far from population centres. Um, but it is really important because most people live in these urban centres to take account of how we're impacting wildlife in those environments. Yeah. And actually, um, 
having the opportunity to re-engage with River Restoration, you know, 10 years ago with the Esk Rivers Trust and with the Esk, uh, South Esk Catchment Partnership was, you know, a real joy for me because I'd spent the best part of 10 years before that actually working in urban environments. Yeah. So I'd come from working in urban and rural environments in, you know, the sh- Chicago suburbs and in the Illinois Cause, farmland. Because Rothels are very far removed from Chicago. <laughs> really is, yeah. Um, before we get on, I'm going to talk about sure. the, the Rothel project a bit, but I, I, I'm interested to know a little bit more about the work that you're doing, you know, over in the States and what the sort of big takeaways from trying to you know, naturalize these ecosystems in urban environments was. Well, one big takeaway that we found um, is that if you build it, they will come. Okay. You heard of that in yeah, terms yeah. of, yeah, so... I had heard that turn of phrase before, but I couldn't for the life of me work out where, so I had to look it up. And as best as I can tell, the original quote was, if you build it, he will come. And it actually came from the 1989 film with Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams, which was about his character struggling with his relationship with his deceased father, who was a devoted baseball fan. A film which I did see, and if I remember rightly, was rather beautiful. And if you haven't seen it, definitely worth a watch. So basically, we were able to reintroduce processes. And so even if we couldn't introduce the natural form, even if we couldn't restore to some you know, historical um, shape, what we could do was try to re-engineer the system in such a way that natural processes that had more diversity of flow, more diversity of physical shape and form, um, that would encourage um, scouring and deposition, that would encourage um, pools and riffles, for instance. um, uh, That was the right kind of uh, morphology for the gradients that we were working in. So even if we had a straightened system and we couldn't re-meander it, we could still re-engineer the bed of the system okay. or parts of the system. So make parts of it deeper, slow yeah. it down in areas which would gouge it out deeper. So we found even in a even in a Chicago suburb, it was the west branch of the north fork of the Chicago okay. River or the north branch of I've the west fork Chicago, of the so Chicago I, River. Um, I'm going to look it up on a map now. Though. I'm going to have to get that right. Um, so anyway, we worked in this system where there wasn't the, the capacity, the land... Um, space on either side because of the straight and river yeah, yeah there were gardens and parks and baseball fields and you know things things that couldn't be moved or that didn't want to be moved <laughs> um and so we were able to because of the the clay substrate because of the you know different conditions that just made it right for us to be able to do it we could introduce rock riffles we could introduce pools um and what we found um, because we checked with electrofishing before the work yep. and afterwards um was we found that the sunfish and the smallmouth bass and the and the, the species that had only been hanging out in a single deep pool underneath a road bridge that where a culvert came out and had scoured a pool, that actually they were in the system. And all they needed was additional habitat within the, the rest of the system. So you didn't have to reintroduce it. No. You just created a system that they no. could thrive in. No, exactly right. Amazing. And that's, I mean, that's the best way to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's some instances now I just did a, um, a podcast with Chris Conroy up on the Nest system where we have impacted certain areas and systems so much that it's got to the point that even if you um, naturalize them, they're beyond the point where they can recover by themselves. I mean, that's a terrible situation to be in, in which case then they need like an extra help. So there's a restocking program on the River Gary system that um, he talked about in some detail. But if you can catch it before you get there, that's obviously, well, not only in terms of resources and money going to be the, the best option, but you probably end up with a 
a more sympathetic approach to how it, it could be in a natural form. And actually, what you described there about sort of, you know, going beyond that tipping point for recovery, that's, that's the case that we find in a lot of urban systems. It's beyond that point. Yeah. So, and, and the thing about urban river systems is they're connected to rural river systems. Rivers run through cities, but they're running from somewhere else to somewhere else. And the connectivity of, of fluvial systems is one of the things that, that fascinates me the most. And working in urban areas is really interesting because of the, all of the complexities that come around the different uses of the land in urban areas. And actually, when I moved away from the States and I'd been working on rural systems, which are fascinating, and I've been able to bring some of that um, experience uh, to working in Angus mm. and working on yeah, the I can see, I can see where that's coming from, especially with the um, restoration of the rottle. Yeah, and so working with drainage districts and farmers and, and, you know, cash crops. I mean, Angus has got some of the most intensive high-grade agricultural soils in Scotland and we have rivers running through that land and we have a tension potentially between, you know, trying to maximise the yield that we get from the crops and trying to maintain a healthy river system and a healthy, healthy fluvial flowing river system through our land and and that was exactly the same conflict that we had um, in Illinois so we sometimes had um, tenant farmers who necessarily weren't the owners of the land but felt that they had to keep rivers straightened because it was part of the land husbandry it was part of looking after the land and doing right by the owner in terms of maintaining the order uh, and on maximizing the landscape. yields and maximising yields and reducing any danger of any large equipment maybe going, you know, uh, becoming unstable because it was next to a bend or, you know, a road being undermined that was an access between fields. And every time they would dig out these drainage ditches in order to maintain that kind of ordered land husbandry, they were creating trapezoidal, so kind of almost like box channels, yep. which were straight. Because of the nature of how they dig it out. Yeah. Exactly. They're absolutely brilliant with backhoe diggers. I mean, they, you know. <laughs> but it's terrible for wildlife. But, and, and they can get these systems straight and flat and they get, and you get the gradient perfect. It looks, in, in, in terms of like construction, but it's terrible it, lo it, for looks, it looks brilliant and neat and tidy. Yes. And our, I th our drive to create these tidy environments, mm. I think has been, you know, one of our biggest faults. Even things like, you know, raking up leaves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a small thing, but, you know, leaf litter is important. Yeah. Hedgehog habitat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But so, I, I, and, and you have to remember that in, um, in the Midwest, we're talking about 200 years of habitation, not 2000 or, you know, the, the kind of heritage around land management that we have in the UK. Yeah. So it's not that many generations since it really was um, a battle to win over the land from the prairie, to win over the land from... Um, the wetland. And of in course order... that was the mindset. It was, it, was, it was this, we need to tame it, you know, tame these wildlands so we can get out of it what we want. Exactly. And, and in the States and in the Midwest, it's, it's not as many generations that that, was, that that was that kind of pioneering kind of achievement compared to what we experience here. So does that make it easier different. or harder to um, sort of re-educate the system? I think it makes it harder. Harder. Yeah, I think because there's. Is that because we've seen we've had many many years to see the effects of what we've done? 
Actually, I don't know. I think that you can't generalise. I think for some people, there. I mean, we found that there were landowners who were absolutely um, on board with giving 10 metres either side of the river channel in order for, you know, greater um, naturalisation potential for pollinator habitat. Just as you find here, you know, one neighbouring landowner will be completely different from the next neighbouring landowner. And some of the best systems that we found over there actually they'd been a bit too zealous and they'd over-deepened and over-widened the drainage ditch just to make sure it could take all of the flow that it needed to okay. take. But because it'd been over-deepened and over-widened, they then found that they didn't have to keep um, dredging it because it was always deep enough and wide enough to take all of the flow and the, the, the field bunds at the side didn't ever get eroded. And so you ended up having these little corridors of fantastic wild habitat with meandering systems going along the bottom of them in low flow with um, exposed gravels, with point bars, with, you know, bits because of erosion. Bits space of, for it. Because they'd basically done the job too well and, they'd, and they'd, they'd made space for it. And so this over-widened, over-deepened channel became this little oasis of wildness going between fields hmm. through this because landscape. Because the river systems kind of rerouted themselves naturally within the confined yeah. area that they, that they had created. So under low flow conditions when it you know wasn't under flood conditions or there hadn't been a lot of rainfall or snow melt, um, yeah, they would just meander along the bottom of this channel and they would, they would have those natural processes and natural forms. And those forms and processes are really what the take home message is, whether it's in, you know, Northbrook in Chicago or whether it's in... Um, you know, a drainage ditch in the middle of the prairie. It's it's about having those forms and processes that support fish, um, that provide shade, that provide refuge. So when you've got the vegetated banks in that over-widened, over-deepened se section and you get the higher flows that could potentially wash species out, yeah. the vegetation slows the flow and provides refuge for the species so they can stay in that section. So the processes under different flow conditions and the forms under different flow conditions help to support wildlife. Mm, you, know, you need all of the elements yeah. for, to com for wildlife to be able to create, um, complete its cycle. Yeah. It's interesting, there's a the sort of common theme that comes across in many of my discussions when we're looking at the interaction between you know humans and wildlife and the natural world is that especially in a on a planet of growing populations economics is a major driver for us to be able to afford to protect environments how did you find that discussion because ultimately if we're looking at these areas of rivers running through farmland one of their, the main drivers from a farmer's point of view is the economics of it. It is how I eat. And now you're saying, well, actually, we would quite like 10 meters of your bank either side so that we can uh, allow the river to meander just a little bit more so that we can allow foliage to, to grow up and provide the shade for the river systems. How, does, how do you compensate for that um, economic loss? That's a really interesting and a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, it's not just river systems. Yeah. I mean, that, that is in... in, in in basically all of the conservation work that we want to do around the world, mm -hmm. ultimately it boils down to being able to pay for it. There's lots of different answers to that, and I'll try and provide yeah. one or two. I mean, one of them is that uh, there's no farmer, no agricultural um, person that I've ever met that doesn't value the soil, the quality of the soil, that that, that few inches few centimetres of soil. It's not much. If it wasn't for those few inches and the fact that it rains 
we wouldn't have that economic benefit from the land. And as soon as we allow excessive rainfall or surface water runoff to take any of those precious few inches off our land and run into a river system and run away off our land and down a system and then potentially, um, you know, blind gravel habitats that, that, that impact on spawning fish and, and all the rest of it. As soon as we let it away from our land, we are reducing our economic viability. So a few metres either side of a river actually can stop that precious resource leaving your land. So there's a really good economic argument for putting that buffer strip there, for putting that water margin there, whatever you want to describe it as. There's a really, really good economic argument for that. Most people have, most farmers will find that they have some gently sloping land, there's a part of their field that gets a bit wet, a bit boggy. That can be a sustainable drainage system, a rural sustainable drainage system that can capture water um, during wet periods, but it'll also capture the soil that the water's bringing, and that soil can be redistributed so it's not being washed during out dry to sea. periods, yeah. not being washed into the river and ultimately out to sea. Um, and and it, the soil's not then taking pesticides and um, fertilizers and other things with it that has many, many knock-on effects. So sometimes thinking in a sensible way about giving over a relatively small proportion of land has a really good economic argument. And there's yet a further economic argument because if we keep the water and the soil on the land, we can extend the life of some of our flood protection systems downstream. So something that costs us a lot of money in this country and globally is... Um, flooding. So we're looking at, with climate change, getting more intense rainstorms. Um, so we'll get more surface runoff when we have rain. And that means we need to think about how we're going to manage water on the landscape. As I edit together this podcast, there is flooding up and down the British Isles with pretty much three days of non-stop rain. But I pulled some flooding statistics from Wired magazine, which quoted the Environment Agency in England as having to spend £1 billion a year with current trends to protect homes from flooding. The Met Office has logged 17 record-breaking rainfalls since 1910. But get this, nine of these have been since the year 2000. Just one storm alone in 2015, Storm Desmond, cost £1.6 billion, and that was just in England. So it certainly seems like we are set for spending a lot more money on flood protection in the years to come. And there are no signs of the trend changing. And natural flood management, including rural, rural sustainable drainage systems and urban sustainable drainage systems and natural, natural-based engineered parts of our landscape, nature-based engineering, um, all of those mechanisms help to actually protect and extend the life of the flood schemes that we have in our towns and cities. And we're just talking about holding the water back for a little bit keeping it on the landscape for a little bit, not, you know, creating wetlands out of intensive farmland, but just for a day or so after it's rained to slow the flow, to get that flow back into our groundwater so it can keep our uh, crops going for longer during dry periods and, and keep our soil and our water on the landscape as much as we can and, and not lose the economic value of all those wonderful natural resources. You hear um, that the old fishermen who are sort of getting towards their end of the day, end of their days uh, now that I hang around with from time to time. So they must be, you know, like in their eighties. And 
now. Talk of the spates on the river systems that, that are around us here, uh, you know, to not so much the big rivers like the Tay, but on the north and south Esk and west water, and how when it would rain, when you'd have a rain event, the spates would last a couple of days before it returned to summer level. Whereas now the spates run up and down in the space of like 24 hours or less, which shows you how quickly the water is finding its way into the river systems and back out to sea. The implications of that, not only for flooding, but for the wildlife that uses those river systems, um, has been marked you know, in the last couple of decades. What is the, uh, the reasons why we have seen that? I mean, the obvious one is draining of land um, but I know that, for example, there's been uh, we've reintroduced contour planting in some of the glens to try and hold um, the water up there. What has led us to the point where we've seen this um, flux of water coming into our systems and rapidly coming out that that wasn't the case 50 years ago? Well, there's a number of different things. I think you know we're perhaps we're using more of the landscape differently than we did then also rainfall patterns have changed and okay, things yeah. like um you know there's a reason why we're doing massive peat restoration projects the peat on the very tops of the hills in our upper catchments uh holds can hold has a potential to hold a lot of water They're like a sponge are up indeed our upland forests um and, you know, the, the plantations that we have have the potential to not only slow down the water um, during the time when we've got those intensive rainfalls, but they also have the capacity to increase drainage down into the water table and the ground groundwater. There's been some work done in the um, Edelston Tweed catchment down in the borders by the British Geological Survey that has showed, um, I think, an eight times increase in infiltration to deeper um, levels under the soil with with mature trees, particularly deciduous. Uh, okay. So native, um, so like native, native stands of, of broadleaf. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so we've made changes to the types of trees that we plant and the places that we plant them. We've also made changes to, we've made the drainage more efficient. There's field drains in in lots of places, or you know, we're we're more efficient. We're uh, better at getting the water off the land. Yeah, because we feel like we want it off the land as quick as possible because we don't want flooded areas in our fields and then the crop okay. dies off underneath. Exactly. And so there's a whole there's a whole combination of things that, that go into that. But I think I think the answer is that we have to think about catchments. We have to think about whole catchments. And that is the, the, the peatland tops of the hills. It's the forests. It's the fields and the farms, the livestock and the, and the arable agriculture it's the farmsteadings and the villages and the towns and the cities and all of the uh, industrial areas and everything that contributes surface to our catchments and all the rain that runs off those surfaces um, gets into our river systems and, and how quickly does it get into our river systems I suppose is the question and where does it go indeed yeah. and and we're beginning to see um more flooding that's not just from rivers bursting their banks, but flooding that's... Um, so you get three types of flooding. Fluvial flooding, which is from rivers. Pluvial flooding, which is um, from high-intensity rainfall. So you don't need to be next to a river, but so it's just surface water. Surface water um, flooding. And then coastal flooding, sea flooding. And so we've got different types of flooding and we're seeing an increased incidence in most of those types of flooding um, for all sorts of reasons, all sorts of reasons. But climate change is part of them, land use is part of them, changing rainfall patterns is part of them. And the way we manage the land certainly is within our control. And so we can try and work with the natural environment and the natural conditions to 
maybe reduce some of those risks. And coming back to your argument about economy, um, there's more and more subsidies that have been available, you know, certainly through the European systems. And let's see what happens going yeah, I was forward. Say maybe not anymore. <laughs> I know. Here we are on the 29th of January. Yeah. Um, so let's see what happens going forward. But um, I hope that we'll continue to see environmental schemes that encourage um, naturalisation of landscape processes and holding soil and water on the land where we want it to be, at least uh, holding the water back temporarily. So if I give you an example from the Esk catchment, the South Esk catchment, um, there's a relatively new flood scheme in Brecon. Yes, I know it. Yeah. And that there was horrendous flooding there. I'm trying to think how long, I think it was longer ago than I am remembering, but maybe six or seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, half the, half the bottom part of the town was underwater. All those houses along River Street, it was like halfway up their doors. So there was a need to protect those properties. But the flood scheme's doing that, but it's supported and it will last longer. Its design life will be longer because of the natural flood management um, practices that are already happening in the upper catchment. And they include the river restoration. They include the um, planting. They include the peatland restoration and lots of different measures that are happening um, around the catchment. All of those things will reduce the pressure on that flood um, alleviation scheme. Because that's just a wall. It's a series of walls yeah. and other measures as well. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the, down, the downstream protection yeah, is mainly keeping water out rather than keeping water on the land, which is all the other more natural systems that you're describing. Yeah. And by keeping water on the land, what we're doing is reducing the amount that has to come up against that wall. Yeah. And we're also reducing the design life of that, that structure. So there's a huge economic advantage mm. to that. The cost of flooding... To society as a whole. Yeah, 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 to society as a whole. And so what we need to do is think in catchments, and people have been thinking of integrated catchment management for a long time. I don't know that we've been very good at doing it, but we need to, um, maybe we need to do it some more. Uh, but thinking in catchments and thinking about how the benefits that happen upstream... So the actions that happen upstream provide benefits downstream. And so there needs to be some kind of recognition of that, some kind of trade-off. So, so that funds can help complete this it could cycle. Be. Yeah. It could be about funds. It could be about social good in some other way. It could be about enterprise within the catchment. Maybe it even just needs to be about recognition and Quant education. Quantifying it is very difficult. Mm. Like the economics of quantifying that is hard. And I think that's one of the barriers that we come up against is you take a town like, like Brecon that we were referring to, which has had bad flooding problems in the past. How do you funnel funds to protect Brecon when actually you're implementing something that's 40 miles upstream? And making that work in a system where you don't have access to lots of funding and grants is, is difficult. Because I, I know how much work goes into applying for all that, those funding and grants to be able to make those things happen. And yet, like you were saying, the, the outcome and the, the good that is seen from that is all the people in those areas and in those catchments benefit from it. And in fact, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We just need to look at New York. Okay. New York and the services provided to the city of New York by the hinterland, the protection that's put in place in the watersheds that service New York and the recognition of the catchment is something that's been in place for decades now. There are really good um, existing examples of that whole catchment thinking in terms of the service that's being provided. So the more the water is protected in the upper catchment, 
the more the citizens that live in the town are protected, the less the cost of treating the water if the water coming into the water treatment plant is good quality. So if it doesn't have pesticides and if it doesn't have sediments and silts in it because the way in which the upper catchment has been maintained and protected, then the water utility company and every single one of the residents that are using the water from that utility company, they're paying less money because there's less production in terms of providing water to their taps. Hmm. So there's an acknowledgement of the upstream effects. Absolutely. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe we need more joined up thinking like that. So some great examples we can draw on. To take it to uh, the Rottle Restoration Project, uh, which is how we started this conversation, why was that? I remember at the time, because I think that was that was started underneath um, Marshall, and obviously Craig's taken it on as... Um, director of the Fisheries Trust. Why was that such an important project at the time? Well, um, the Rottle Burn was straightened in... I think it was like 1890 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was at the, at the end of the 1800s. Um, and it was straightened to try and reduce flooding to increase the value of the field so that it could be used more often. Um, but in fact, what happened was water got from the Rottle catchment more efficiently to the Esk, but the Esk still flooded and it backed up and it still flooded the field. So it was kind of an idea to do that sort of more efficient drainage to try and have greater utilisation of the land. Um, but because it was a straight channel, it was a shorter channel. It got the water from the Rottle catchment to the Esk more quickly. And in fact, if the Esk was in flood, it was a bigger system. It took priority in terms of whether or not the land was going to flood. And so those, those fields still had some challenges in terms of their use. But it remained like that for a really long time until 2011, 2012, when um, the Esk Fisheries Trust, along with the, the landowner at Rottle Estates, Dee Ward, and the um, uh, South Esk Catchment Partnership, you know, came together, started talking to SEPA, started talking to SNH, started talking to other parties about, you know, doing some environmental good because the land could be perhaps given over to supporting uh, fish and other species within the system. It could have more environmental gain if we if we gave over a bit of land to restore and re-meander that system. So what happened was um, this was all given permission under the... Um, Water Environment Fund, I think. It was it was funded, uh, certainly partly by the Water Environment Fund. And um, that allowed EnviroCentre, as the sort of design and build engineering consultants, uh, environmental consultants, to come in. And Kenny McDougall worked with um, Marshall Halliday and others uh, to look at a number of different potential design plans. Mm -hmm. And they were great because they used... Um, aerial photos. Yeah, that was amazing because they had aerial photos of the original route that the river had taken. Well, they had old maps, yeah. so they might have used Roy's map of Scotland. It they pains me to admit this, but although I had heard of Roy's map before, I wasn't exactly sure what it was referring to, so I looked it up. And it is a military survey of Scotland that was done between 1747 and 1755, also known as the Great Map. It is of huge importance today because it, it's a uniform graphic of Scottish mainland at a time just before an era of rapid change. So it gives us a base level to look back to. And they certainly used aerial photos. And, and under uh, dry or drought conditions, uh, old channel forms can often be seen really clearly. And in fact, in, in recent droughts, I think... Though the one two years ago... Archaeological remains have been identified and that, all sorts of that, things. That, that drought, which I think was two years ago that we had... Yeah, I think it was last summer. 
where we had like four or five months of no rain. There was loads of archaeological discoveries in that period, mm -hmm. just because suddenly you could see where crops weren't growing or the foliage, the, the root system hadn't gone down as far, so it was shorter. And even the topography, the, the sort of the height of the land would yeah. change, so yeah, um, it because it would sink or, down yeah. differently according to to what was underneath. So it. the same is true for old riverbeds. So the same is true for riverbeds because um, rivers will lay down sediments, they'll carve channels, and so bends were visible, meanders were visible, where they had been more than a hundred years previously. It's amazing. And so it was possible to start thinking about maybe even restoring yeah. <laughs> the river to, uh, to one of its previous restoring channels. Restoring and then allowing it to naturalize, naturalize. which was the plan. Wasn't it? The really exciting, th the reason I'm so excited about the Rottle is that, you know, I've spent the last 20 years working with engineers and engineers like to build a thing and for it to stay where they put it. <laughs> That's pretty much yes. one of the things that they spend a lot of time making sure happens. And I love engineers and I love engineering, um, but I also love natural processes. And I love that this system was engineered in such a way that it could then react, respond and change its its shape and its form mm. according the to the flows that were coming through. The intention was dynamic change. Yeah. So it would be uh, a river that was encouraged back into a more natural form somewhere where it had been before. It went from, I think, 800 metres of straight channel to 1,200 metres of meandering channel. Um, and uh, so it had a longer um, channel, so it had a lower gradient, so it was always going to act a bit differently. And what we see is an amazing transformation. So I've been monitoring it since um, December 2012. So it was restored. It was it was opened um, in August 2012. The new channel. And uh, since I remember, I was there at the opening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and since and since December 2012. Um, in snowy conditions like we have in the hills today, I've been out there with my tripod, with my total station, uh, with my students, with technicians. Um, and I have to give a shout out to, to Bob Peter, who's a technician who's worked with me on, on that site for the whole of the, the last um, eight years. Um, and 15 or 16 different students now, starting with uh, Nicola Day. She was the first student. And we, we set up our tripod and we took measurements of the top of the bank and the, the depth of the pools and the position of the riffles to get a physical understanding of where the river was. And we came back after the winter and we did it again. And we came back in the shifted. spring and we did it again. And we've done it two or three times a year since 2012. And we have seen this amazing transformation. The river has shifted its bed and its banks and it's created beautiful gravel habitat it's created bars it's created riffles we've got transverse bars we've got islands we've got what's a transverse bar so we've got um bars that sort of go across the channel okay and then uh, sometimes you get the water the predominant flow um, you might think that it always heads downstream. Oh, yeah, you get little back eddies but, sometimes but, coming. Well, sometimes you get eddies, but sometimes you get it sort of coming down sort of a deeper section on one side next to a bank, and it kind of crosses over, and then it goes down the other side. Okay. And so, so, so some, this is how you get some like uh, some corners which are which are deep and gouged out, and then it redeposits um, its bed further downstream. And we've also been able to monitor it through those big channel forming events. So you talked about the spates earlier. So we had Storm Frank. Of course. Yeah. Famous Storm Frank. I know. And that was, uh, you know, preempted by Desmond and <laughs> whoever else <laughs> came along. And Storm and, Borbag, I think. That yeah. was two years before. So we had, we had all these storms uh, that basically turned most of the Esk uh, in Glen Clover into a lake. 
Yeah, so I, I remember seeing that you couldn't you couldn't work out where the edge of the river was. No, no, no. the whole floodplain was yeah. was exactly that. It was a floodplain. It really was storing yeah. water in the upper catchment yeah. and protecting the town yeah. downstream. Exactly what it was supposed to do. It's a floodplain. Yeah. So, um, so we could see that this lake had appeared, and we had no idea what was happening to the river underneath. Would it still be where it was? When the, when the flood came through. Floods like that are channel changing events. Like a channel can be in a different position when the flood subsides because the volume and the speed of water that have been coming through it. But amazingly, that wasn't the case. We ended up with gravels being deposited against some of the worst eroded banks. It actually kind of healed itself in the flood. So areas that had, had to be reinforced because maybe there was one bend that uh, they decided to reinforce because maybe it was just moving a bit more than they, they had really hoped that it would. But in Storm Frank, tons of gravel were deposited against that bank and a really diverse um, cross-section appeared. And, and maybe we didn't need to do that, Nature that is reinforcement wonderful. after all. So, okay, we've got this. We're all very happy because the river system looks natural now. It's not a, a very defined straight channel. And we've talked about the potential benefits for helping keep water upstream because if you don't have a straight channel and it actually has to meander as it's making its way down it's going to take longer for that water to get from a to b but apart from that who cares you know so what we've got something that actually looks like a nice river now but what's what's been the other positive positive benefits apart from keeping water in the upper catchment so that's been one of the great things working with lots of different students because every single student will have a different kind of area of interest that they want to investigate. So we'll always measure the morphology, the shape and the form of the channel with our student projects. But we've had students that have actually done um, stakeholder interviews and surveys. So they've interviewed the farmer that lives closest, the landowner, they've interviewed SEPA, they've interviewed Marshall, they've interviewed the stakeholders to ask them, so what? What does this mean? What does is it mean to you? Yeah. Is it successful? What do you think? And um, so that was a uh, that was a project done by Karina Gartner, and she was interested to find out what the people thought of this of this change. And overwhelmingly, the stakeholders that she spoke to felt that it had been a success, from the regulators to the landowners to the farmers, um, uh, to the ESC partnership. And so they all felt that it had been a success, that it was a, a project that um, had done good, that had increased the environmental value of the land. And she now works as a natural flood management officer down in Somerset, okay. partly um, as a result of the, the work that she did on the Rottle. It's been a fantastic staging um, ground, a springboard for, for these students who've now gone into uh, you know, working for international consultancies in, in, in water and, and water management, from engineering to stakeholder engagement. But also I had another student, um, Mira Hanover, who looked at the could we value the benefit. Okay. So she did an ecosystem service assessment of um, the restored channel to try and compare it to the value of the straightened channel previously and whether any benefit had been gained. An ecosystem service assessment takes on board, are there regulating benefits? Like, is it regulating the flow? Is it enhancing the environment in a way to reduce pollution, to reduce flooding, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it also looks at, um, you know, are there benefits to society and to culture? And so it tries to, to take advantage of it's those hard. sort of things. And, and is there an impact on provisioning, like agriculture and production? 
Um, so she did this assessment and she came up with um, a really good return on investment in okay. terms of... of yeah, the I, think it, I think it costs upwards of like £150,000 mm-hmm. in the initial mm-hmm. work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the return value is more than double what, what, what it cost in terms of looking at those social, environmental and production factors. And there might be a bit of a negative in production if you think it's maybe taking a bit of land out of sort of traditional production. But the net gain is but there. it's also provided habitat for fishing and then that gives you a production value within the catchment yeah. as well. And Craig talked about that, I think, in the interview I did with him mm-hmm. um, about the, the prevalence of, of par mm-hmm. in electrofishing, mm-hmm. uh, par and fry and, and the different habitats that now exist within that um, short river system that didn't before and that's it because they were in the system they were in the esk yeah so yeah, they, that wasn't a restocking it was no, just exactly. they cre- cre- the habitat was created for them and they came so there's more build capacity. it and they will come yeah. exactly more capacity because the the form and the function is there mm. yeah it's uh, it's so important to um do studies like that to try and explain the benefits of works such as this project because it's very difficult for most people um, to see a benefit if it's not something very physical and in front of them. But even things like the fact that there's lots of wild grasses and flowers on either side of the bank now where there wouldn't have been before, that's habitat for pollinators. So every single yeah, pollinators farm... pollinators yeah. required for agriculture. Every single farm. The potato fields, you know, like two fields down will be benefiting from the, the restoration of the rottle because there are pollinators close by and there's habitat and refuge for the pollinators and for invertebrates. So we're seeing sort of, you know... Um, invertebrate species that now have a habitat they've got the right habitats uh, there so that we've got that kind of cycle at different levels as well so it's exciting other uh, i want to get on to talk about talk about antarctica in a minute um, but are there any other projects right now that you're really excited about and getting your teeth into that, I'm, that i maybe don't know about oh you're shaking your head so there are tell I'm, me tell I'm me nodding. i want to know um so one of the i'm <laughs> guessing it has something to do with river systems does it it kind of does, kind of does. it has to because do with actually i'm gonna press pause on one second what is your what is your title here at the university so what so, is your area of research and interest so my um my title is Senior Lecturer in Environmental Science. Okay, and so that's the, pretty broad. Yeah. Uh, my background training is in geography, predominantly physical geography and landscape processes. So uh, my PhD was on the way soil erosion uh, happens on agricultural land. Okay. So, so very, very relevant to what we've been talking about. Very much understand uh, those hill slope processes that happen. Um, I've always been into water. Uh, so that's uh, waterborne soil erosion was what I looked at for my PhD. And then I went over to the States and I started working. I moved down the catchment into the river and started wor- working on the river channel and, and river naturalisation. And then when I moved back from the States in 2002... And I started working here at Aberty University and I was working uh, within the engineering team. We don't have a geography or, or environment department here, um, but I was working within the engineering team and the Urban Water Technology Centre. And again, I moved sort of down the catchment from the river into the, into the city and started looking at sustainable urban drainage systems and urban green space and the multiple functions and values of space within cities. Um, And so my engineering colleagues were absolutely brilliant in terms of being able to come up with engineering designs and being able to deal with issues around volumes of water that could be stored for things like flood management, for um, reduction on... uh, We don't want to overwhelm sewer systems so that if we do that, then we have flows out into the natural environment that are not treated and we want to try and avoid that whenever possible. 
So, so they were the experts on the kind of the design and the the hydraulics and and the function. And what 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 I was really interested in adding to their expertise was the multiple benefits that could be gained through really good design. So, if we thought about designing for water in urban settings, um, could we think about doing that in a way that really engaged with other benefits? And that's the thing that I'm really excited about that I want to tell you about. Oh, okay. Because I've been working Perfect on that. Lead in. Indeed. I've been working on that for um, almost 20 years now here. I guess it's, I came in 2002, it's now 2020, so that's 18 years. Um, and through that time, uh, I, for the first part, I've been running an international network called SUDSNET, which is practitioners and academics from all over the world who come together to share lessons learned and practices and um, processes for managing water in urban environments. But that whole community of practice has changed from thinking about pollutant treatment and water retention to now thinking about ecosystem services, biodiversity benefit and gain, designing for people, designing for places, livable cities, walkable cities, linking with uh, sustainable travel, active travel. And the thing that I'm really excited that I'm doing at the moment is, I mean, and I've done that work in, you know, in Brazil and in Minas Gerais, I've done it in the Mediterranean. But what I'm going to tell you about now is what I'm doing in Dundee. So Which is I've, just down the road from where I live. I've brought all that experience <laughs> yeah. uh, from those almost 20 years of working with urban water to working with the, na uh, the National Health Service, Scottish okay. Natural Heritage, Dundee City Council, uh, on something that we call Scotland's Natural Health Service. Okay. So I'm working uh, as part of a national um, programme still the NHS, but it's na natural, not national. <laughs> okay. So Scotland's, uh, our natural health service is about trying to um, encourage people to engage with nature for the good of their health. So by doing that, by there's loads of literature, there's loads of studies that prove the benefit of spending time in nature. Now, those benefits can be cardiovascular, they can be in relation to stress, they can be in relation to mental health and well-being, they can be as a treatment, they can be as a recovery, they can be preventative. So spending time in nature um, reduces our heart rate, it reduces our stress, it reduces... Um, our risk of um, lots of different things that could physiologically or, or uh, mentally or part of our well-being um, impact us. And so why don't we do it more? So we have very sedentary jobs that tend to be indoors. We move from place to place in metal boxes, whether they be trains or cars. Well, not you while you're commuting because you cycle into work. I know, I've got my, got my bicycle <laughs> helmet right here. Rather than a box. <laughs> yes. So, so my therapy, my prevention every day is cycling along the Tay. Even if I'm battling the wind, which I often am, I have green space, I have blue space, I have big sky. And that starts my day amazingly well. So I was already a convert. But the thing is, not everybody has that perspective and not everybody finds that making the transition to spending time outdoors is something that's accessible to them. And we know that people that haven't been exposed to nature and haven't, been, haven't engaged with nature as children are much less likely to spend time outdoors as adults. So there's all sorts of different facets to that. But what we're doing in Dundee is we have a green health partnership, a local green health partnership in Dundee. And that Green Health Partnership has a Green Health Officer, Viola Marks, 
and it has um, connections with both the NHS health teams um, and the social prescribing network in Tayside and it has obviously connections with Dundee City Council because they have the parks and the green space yeah. maintenance um, in Dundee and we're also starting conversations with Scottish Water and other people that manage different parts of our urban environment to try and link up the, the like that whole catchment thinking I was talking about bringing people together to make better decisions and speaking to GPs, so we have green prescriptions in Dundee. There are I didn't know that was a thing. There are three uh, GP practices in Dundee that have the regular pink pad where you can do a prescription for pills or potions or ointments and a green pad. And the green pad is printed in the same print shop on the same paper with the same perforation down the middle and you're handed it by your GP in the same way you would be handed a pink prescription. And it comes from that person who is advising you about your health and well-being. And that green prescription gives you a number to call and the Dundee Voluntary Network will um, pick up your call, will log the number on your prescription so we know which ones have been filled just like the pink prescriptions have got a unique identifier. And they will be able to advise you according to your needs and your locality, what's available for you to do near to you that would allow you to engage with nature for the good of your health. It's amazing. And even offer you a volunteer to come to your door to take you the first time, to overcome the inertia of maybe never doing that before, or maybe going to a group where you don't know anybody. And so for the first three times... And they will offer a volunteer to come and help facilitate that engagement. And then the person can go and engage with community gardening, with walking groups, with cycling groups, with all sorts of different activities that were already happening, but happening in isolation. So this is really exciting. It's an incredible it's social service, but how... Like bringing people together for the, for the benefit of people. And all of that takes the pressure off the NHS. And the NHS is, is creaking oh, at yeah. the edges. It always is. It has been for my whole life. Yeah. So we need to not... Especially at this time of year. Exactly. We need, to not, we need to try and reduce the pressure on the NHS by helping people to help themselves and giving them the knowledge and the facilities and the awareness about how to do that and take the pressure off the NHS and maybe having less prescriptions, less polypharmacy. Because another thing about the water environment is every pill that we take, we pee out some yeah. of that prescription and that's not necessarily treated in our water treatment systems and then that affects the fish in the Esk and salmon in the Atlantic. It's something I need to read more about, but I, I know that in certain, um, especially water output beside urban centres, there has been a number of studies um, to do with how... Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, how the pharmaceuticals that we consume are affecting our river systems. And actually, Scotland are a world leader in that as well. Oh, really? It's very recent and it's... Well, it's, in terms of the research? Well, there's, well, we've got lots of great emerging pollutant research, but Caithness Hospital has just been awarded a water stewardship. It's the first in the world water stewardship for the hospital because they are making special care of treating the water that comes out in terms of the emerging pollutants, the pharmaceutical pollutants that come out into... Um, 
uh, into the environment. So there's really good stuff happening in Scotland, protecting our water environment, not just the morphology, the shape and the form and the function, but the chemical and the biological components of our water environment as well. I bet you most people who are taking uh, prescription drugs for whatever reason are, are not considering for a moment the fact that they might be affecting our waterways. And if you've got some left, take them back to the chemist. Don't flush them down the loo. Don't pour them Is down the sink. Yeah, I, I, I don't take any like prescription meds on a, on a regular basis. Like paracetamol is probably the most common thing I take for a headache. Lucky you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess... That is what people would do or put them in the bin? So the advice always is to take them back to a pharmacy. Don't flush them down the toilet. And if you put them in landfill, they can leach out into the soil, which gets them into the water table, which gets them into the water environment as well. What are the, do you know what the, the, this might not be an area of expertise for you, but do you know what the sort of major consideration is with pharmaceuticals in our waterways? I know that um, contraceptives has been one that's discussed. That's the main one that I've read. Yeah, so then um, contraceptive, because they work on sort of uh, hormones and they can be endocrine dis- disruptors and they can affect... Um, the hormone balance within yeah, like fish and, yeah. and other... Um, but there are, there's sort of analgesics, so, so painkillers um, that are in there. There's also sort of heart meds and, you know, um, blood pressure medicines and all sorts of things. So the things that are taken more commonly are the things that are found more commonly. But there's also, you know, all sorts of things. Um, but... I don't have the details off the top of my head, but I could head yeah, you towards I mean, well, some well, information. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe what I'll do is I'll find out who is actually researching and studying that and I can do a podcast with I them. think that would be ideal. Yeah, I think that would be fascinating. Um, so the, just to go back to the this project with the green slips, mm-hmm. how how have you managed to get the sort of the backing and support for something like that? Because it takes a colossal amount of work and effort and funding to be able to achieve that. I mean, I, it, I think it's fantastic that people are, you know, getting out of their house and just clearing their mind and their body and their soul in the, in the countryside, even if it is a little pocket of the countryside within an urban environment. I think it's, for me, I know what it does for me mm-hmm. when I walk out on the hill. And for some people, they're not necessarily interested in exercising. That's not what they want to do. That's not their, but maybe doing a bit of gardening or doing art in a park or, you know, something else is the thing that will get them to spend time in that environment. But what we know is that even if you're passive in a natural environment, you don't have to be going for a jog. There's health benefits to it. Yeah, there's this huge health benefit. Cortisol levels, you know, go down, uh, you know, breathing regulates, heart uh, beat regulates. There's all sorts of things that happen if you just spend time. You could go and sit on a bench in a park so so it's being funded by scottish natural heritage and scottish government so we've got funding okay, so for the do, green health partnership yeah that. so so they're um funding yes yeah, so scottish government um, scottish natural heritage and um i think scottish forestry uh, and again i can provide the link to, yeah. the, to the natural we'll health service that, yeah. um so so it's um Nationally supported within Scotland, Dundee is one green health partnership. There's North and South Lanark, South Ayrshire and Highland region that are also green health partnerships. Um, but Dundee's the only city region. Okay, so that probably makes it one of the most important then. Because so like a Highland, most of that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they're all taking yeah. different approaches and they're all being organised and coordinated by different people. And they're providing solutions that are relevant to their regions. So it's really good that there's some kind of ownership within the regions of how that gets 
you know, rolled out because it's relevant then to the different regions and the different places. So would I, I can't remember the last time I went to the doctor, but um, if I was in Brecon, would I see the green slip on the No, so we've centre? got it three... hasn't quite reached that far We've yet. got three pilots... Um, and it's in Angus, not Dundee. <laughs> so we've oh, got. Of so course, this is, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I always think of Dundee and Angus, which yes, is normally how yeah. it's referred to as a region. But there's no reason why it shouldn't be soon, right? So what we've done is we've got three pilot GP services, but we've also got um, community workers and and link workers that can uh, issue prescriptions as well. So it's not just the GPs; it's it's people that are patient facing, but not necessarily within a, okay. a GP surgery. So we've now issued hundreds of green prescriptions and we're monitoring how well they're being what's, taken what's the up and, like? um, I'm going to have to get the data uh, from okay. Viola to, well, to find that out because it's relatively new well maybe I'd, 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 this podcast will probably go in the next couple of weeks do you think you'll have it back by then I could or? try and get some yeah, information if, if you've got some info you. then I can at least give people an update give you the latest update yeah, yeah that'd be cool um so I'm so excited about that because that brings my kind of, you know, landscape form and function interest, my green space and water and how we can get multiple benefits from the way we manage our environment right back literally to the heart of the urban environment where individuals have an opportunity to gain health benefits personally. And of course, if they have health benefits, they have economic benefits, yeah. they have social benefits, they have all sorts. If your health is good... Lots of other things fall into place. Employers benefit if fewer people have less days off, you know, if less yeah. people have days off work. And society benefits um, in lots of different ways, apart from what I've said about the NHS. So, I mean, I guess I think geography is a fantastic discipline because it gives you a grounding across sort of society, environment, you know, nature, everything from geology through to economy you know it, it's it kind of it it covers all those subjects and I've always been passionate about working across disciplines yeah it's and, so important that. yeah and and particularly in the way people interact with nature yeah that's so, like that's that's what makes me tick is yeah. looking at human interaction with nature and well in in both directions yeah uh, because ultimately we need to understand and do a better job of that if we want to uh, continue to see the environments that we enjoy right now thrive in the future sure because we've seen most of them well i think probably all of them decline you know over our lifetimes i feel like we've covered a lot already we have we have and so i'm going to get to um which is sort of the burning thing i wanted to ask you about which was actually what what prompted me first to, to contact you to come and do this podcast today was you're going to antarctica not many people get to say they have the even the opportunity to do that why are you going? How did the opportunity come about? Uh, what are you going to be doing while you're there? I want to know it all. Okay, so I'll try and be relatively brief. Um, I'm going to Antarctica in November 2020, so in a few months. So that'll be the Antarctic spring, uh, going into summer. And I'm going with 80 women in STEM. That's amazing. So we are globally a collective of 80 women in all sorts of career stage, from early career all the way up to people that are close to retirement in all sorts of dif disciplines from astrophysics and geotechnics and engineering through to medicine and midwifery and education and government and policy interactions. So we have STEM with a double M, science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. Okay. And so we're looking at um, bringing together people from all of those different uh, topics, all those different STEM topics. Um, and all women, and why women, okay? So, first of all, there's um, 
a bit of a gender discrepancy within STEM subjects. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a, it is something that we need to talk about more. Yeah, and so it goes right from people's perception, you know, in, in kindergarten, preschool, nursery, all the way through to what they choose to do for their hires or their A-levels or their, um, you know, their university degrees. And we are seeing quite a lot of women going into STEM subjects more than there used to be. And that's really encouraging. But what we don't see is women in STEM leadership. We get, if you like, it's sometimes described as a glass ceiling or a leaky pipeline or, you know, something like that. So something's happening. There are barriers to women getting into sort of senior leadership roles. And there's a big area that we could talk about here. I mean, there's there's lots of debate about, you know, whether you should fix the system or fix fix the women. And we don't think you should fix the women. <laughs> I, think prob- I think probably it's the system that is at fault. <laughs> But what who, we d- who would suggest? <laughs> that seems like a ridiculous suggestion. Yeah, we might have opened some, a can maybe, of worms. Maybe some people do suggest that. I don't know. But <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's frightening. Yes. And so, but anyway, what we can do is we can try and enhance uh, the leadership training that women have that are already engaged in STEM subjects in order to provide a springboard towards um, thinking within the system that we currently have that would enable us to make um, more of an influence. But, but more importantly than that, perhaps more importantly than that, there's, there's two big aims of this programme. This programme is called Homeward Bound, and it's a project that's coordinated out of Australia. It so happened that, that Fabian Datner, who's the, um, you know, who had the idea for this project, um, is based in Australia. And um, Homeward Bound has the ambition, an amazing ambition, of trying to take 1,000 women in STEM over about 10 or 12 years all on the same year-long leadership journey and all culminating in a trip to Antarctica at the end of their year-long leadership journey. So I'm in the fifth cohort. So four cohorts of women have already been, 80 or 100 women have been in the last four years on a year-long leadership journey, which we do remotely because we're in countries all over the world. I'm one of only two women from Scotland that have been selected to go this year. Um, the rest of the women are from across Europe, South America, um, Asia Pacific, Africa, all sorts of different places, and Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so we do our training remotely. We have um, Zoom calls and Facebook Live calls. We have smaller groups that we work in, sort of tutorial working groups, where we work on um, all sorts of things um, to do with leadership and about understanding our own approach to what we do and how we do it. And the two big goals of um, Homeward Bound are not just about leadership uh, for women in STEM. That's one. And the second is climate change. Okay. So what two pretty hefty topics, right? There. Big topics, yeah. and you might call them wicked problems or kind of, you know, um, current challenges, global challenges. So we know that they feed into many of the sustainable development goals, not just the one about equality for women, and not just the one about you know climate adaptation. It feeds in across. It could be uh, sustainable consumption. It could be around education. It could be around working together to deliver the sustainable development goals. It could be around poverty and hunger. Lots of the different sustainable development goals relate to equality within society and to addressing the climate challenges that we have. Now, these are two topics that I've been working on for most of my career. So I've been working on sustainable environmental management for the whole of my professional career. And for the past 10 years or so, I've been also working on um, gender equality in higher education. So thinking about the way in which we can make um, 
academic environments uh, more equal and accessible and, uh, and to make sure that they're equitable for everybody. Uh, and we have race equality charters and gender equality charters that we're working to to try and make sure that our publicly funded institutions are actually meeting some of the sort of societal norms that we would aspire to. Um, so, so these are things that I'm already really heavily engaged in. And then I found out about Homeward Bound. I found out about two years ago from Kate Duncan, who I'd met through um, an academic leadership programme 10 years ago called Scottish Crucible. And we were going to an alumni event and she said she'd been to Antarctica. And you thought, like, that sounds cool. I thought you worked in a lab. Yeah. You're not like a geological scientist or a glacial scientist or a climate scientist. <laughs> and she went, no, but it's part of this Women in STEM leadership programme. And you know what? You could apply. <laughs> and I thought, surely that, that's nothing I'd ever thought I would do in my career. I, I'm not a glaciologist. I'm not an you know, atmospheric climate scientist or a, somebody who needs to be at the South Pole to get the clarity of the sky, to be able to see parts of our galaxy that are 300,000 light years away. You know, that's not the science that I do. Um, but I looked into it and I applied and so this, I was, and, and I was selected. And it's prestigious, and it's selective, and it's ambitious. And I couldn't be more delighted to be part of it. That's amazing. What an experience. I mean, so what are you going to be doing while you're there? So we... Um, You'll obviously be working as part of a team. We will. So all 80 of us will be there together. We're going to do as much um, collaboration as we can before we get there. Um, but we're really on a mission to... It's a fact-finding mission, if you like. So we don't have a research project that we're going to carry out. We've got our own sort of leadership projects and our own homeward bound agendas that we need to complete but we go down, we meet in southern Argentina in Ushaya and we get on a ship called the Ushaya that will take us across the southern ocean, which means we need to navigate the Drake Passage, which can be one of the most unsettling sea journeys anywhere. It's one of the rough, well, I think it's, it's the roughest sea in the world. Yeah, yeah. that's because, a bit, I'm because, not quite looking the, forward the, the, to that. There's nothing holding, the, holding it back. There's just open expanse around the entire globe. So uh, all of those currents circulate around Antarctica and we need to cross them. <laughs> uh, I believe that waves can be 12 to 20 metres high and wow. the ship can uh, sort of lilt to the side by 30, 32 degrees. Okay. So like a roller coaster. According to Rolling Stone magazine, in 2017, a boy recorded a wave of 80 foot high, which made it the highest ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. And while we're talking about breaking records, as many of you probably saw in the last couple of weeks, the highest temperature on record was recorded in Antarctica for the first time ever. The mercury rose above 20 degrees centigrade to 20.75. It's going to be interesting. Couple but it might be completely calm when it you It might be. Let's hope so. How can, many days do Can you everybody know? please pray for calm seas <laughs> We'll <for> do that. <laughs> A couple of days to cross. A couple of days, okay. Yeah, and then we go to the um, Antarctic Peninsula and we visit uh, different research stations on the Antarctic Peninsula. So I'm really excited because we get to see maybe what the Argentinian researchers are doing, what the British researchers are doing, what the Australians are doing in their own research bases. So we have this amazing 
opportunity to look at different nations within the continent of Antarctica and what their research is doing and the impact that it's having and how it contributes to engaging people with science, understanding climate change impacts, mm. all of that There's kind so of stuff. There's so much great research going on down there. And the fact that you have all these countries through the Antarctic Treaty mm -hmm. doing their things but also collaborating mm -hmm. is... Well, it's, it's a testament to what is possible if we work together. And do you know, Antarctica is the only continent on the earth that has got a treaty that says that it's about peace and research. The whole of the continent, uh, it's just celebrated 60 years of the Antarctic Treaty. Oh, I didn't realise it was that long. So just had 60 years of the Antarctic Treaty and more signatories have come on board during that period. But the, the continent is dedicated to scientific inquiry and to peace. There are no national borders. You don't need to show a passport to cross different places. There is uh, a sense of global community and understanding that is present on Antarctica that doesn't exist on any That's other continent. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I know one thing's for certain, if you don't mind, when eventually you come back, mm -hmm. we need to sit down and do another podcast so we can talk just about the Antarctic expedition what you've been up to um i want to just uh finish up just rewinding just a little bit because i think it's important and it's not it's something that we haven't really talked about on this podcast before but what do you see as the sort of major barriers with students that that you're teaching and what work is going on to address that um gender inequality you were, you were talking about like women in stem is something that we are seeing more and more you know, topically. We're seeing it um, in social media. We're seeing it through the news cha channels. Um, I happen to know some incredible women involved in, in science, and I'm always very keen to give them the mic. But if you were to look at the, uh, the people that I interview on the podcast, it's largely guys. But that's for only one reason, one reason only, because that is what is dominant in the areas that, I'm interested in and that we talk about on the podcast, whether that be, um, you know, adventure or science and ecology and conservation. You showcase some men. amazing women as well. You know, mm. some of the stuff that, that you do has showcased the, well, the efforts I, of I some try. amazing women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do. It's just, it's, it's definitely not proportionate. I can give you some names. Brian. Oh, I'm, I'm, don't worry. After the podcast, that's what I, that's what I was going to tap you up for those. So, so part of what we're trying to do is to raise awareness and visibility. So visibility is critical. You know, if there are role models, if there are visible, um, you know, women in STEM, women in business around science, women in industry and research around science, technology, engineering, medicine and maths, then those role models sort of permeate through what we see as societal norms. So we need to sort of work on those societal norms. And people have been working on that. So, you know, the Scottish government's been working on it. Lots of places, the UN's been working on it. Um, there's been loads of fantastic efforts towards raising visibility, raising opportunities, you know, um, uh, addressing not just conscious bias, but unconscious bias when it comes to the way we treat boys and girls and the things that we suggest that they might do for their careers but, and, but and how we support them. But that can come at a very young age, doesn't it? People that can be turned can off science age three. Or, you know, uh, you know, social norms and perceptions that, that work across different generations and different communities and different cultures. Even um, sort of religious norms and cultural norms can feed into all of that. I mean, it's a complex topic. Um, so there's been a lot of great work done and we're going in the right direction, but I'm afraid I have some bad news. I have some very sobering news. 
the Global Gender Gap report was just released within the last few weeks. Oh, I must have missed that when I was away. And uh, it's a World Economic Forum document. Oh, okay, of course. So that was, was that from the meeting in Davos? Uh, it was issued before that. Okay. Um, but, I mean, there are some places that are doing great. But for the UK, and we're sitting in the UK at the moment, um, the UK's dropped six places in the last two years. We're now at 21, and that's between Colombia and Albania in the Global Gender Gap Report. Now, we're not the lowest-ranked country is this, is this in a, Europe. Is this across um, everything, or is this just in the sciences? No, this is across everything. Okay. So even the subjects where women are prevalent. So, um, so this is looking at the gender pay gap. It's looking at the amount of unpaid work and caring that's done. It's looking at all sorts of factors that feed into gender parity. So gender equality and gender parity. And the... Um, yeah, the bad news is that the UK are going backwards, not forwards, or at least we're not holding our place. And and also the big headline from the, the World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report 2020 was that if we keep going at the current rate, remember I said we're making progress. Yeah. If we keep going at the current rate, it'll be 99 and a half years before we see global gender parity. That's not my lifetime. It's not my children's lifetime. No. So what is uh, you know what are you involved in uh, as it stands right now that is working to address that? Because clearly it's something that you're very passionate about and you said yeah. you've been working on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I have friends who are exactly the same over in the States. You know, it's something that sits very close to their heart for very obvious, obvious reasons, men and women, yeah. for that matter. No, absolutely. I mean, this is an issue that affects everyone in society. It's not an issue about women for women. It's a, it's a societal issue. It's a cultural issue. Um, and, you know, absolutely, women should be supporting men and men should be supporting women. And if we don't all work together, we don't get where we need to be. So I've been working on something called the Athena Swan Charter within Aberdeen University. Okay. So it's and just within this institution? It's a national agenda. Oh, it is. Uh, but each individual, um, each individual higher education institution or research institution um, could be working towards Athena Swan Chartership. And that means that you basically collect enough data on any gender um, inequity or whatever that you might have within your institution. You take a long, hard look at yourself. You figure out where you need to do better and you create an action plan. And you submit that as an application to this national, um, it's called Advance HE, so Advanced Higher Education, um, this, this kind of national network who uh, manage the Athena Swan Charter. And you can be, if, if you're deemed to be doing enough or to, to have identified your problems appropriately and have, have actions in place, you can be awarded a bronze charter. And if you make progress on your bronze, you can gain a silver. And if you make progress on your silver, you can gain a gold charter. And those charters can be held by the institution as a whole. So Aberté holds a bronze charter. Then individual departments can also work within their own subject areas towards bronze, silver and gold. And so across Scotland, we've got institutions that hold, you know, uh, bronze and silver. We've got departments that hold bronze, silver and gold. Uh, and this happens all the way across the UK and different countries. Um, it's been rolled out into Northern Ireland now. Different countries have different um, sort of things. So that's one of the things I'm working on. I also uh, make sure that we always do something to celebrate um, International Women in Engineering Day. I get involved in, in um, Women's Day um, 
activities. I'm a STEM ambassador. I go out to schools. I encourage my students to go out to schools to uh, promote science, technology, engineering uh, to children of all ages. Um, go along to. Because I suppose awareness as part of the education is a major part of mm -hmm. that. Because once people get to the university, they've, although that might not be the path that they're, they're set in, in mm -hmm. concrete, mm -hmm. they've still made a lot of decisions at this point before they get here. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing a lot of the work really has to be done at a much younger age. Yeah, and that's where, you know, universities can't do it alone. So we can do what we can do, you know, to, to increase gender equality for our staff as well as for our students, um, for our technicians, for our, you know, all of all the people that work within the institution. We can do what we can do within the, the scope that we have any control. But on top of that, many of us, I mean, many of my colleagues are STEM ambassadors, uh, lots of people across the UK have signed up to different STEM ambassador networks, which means we can be called upon or we can offer to go to um, community events, to go to girl guide groups or boy scout groups or boys brigade or schools or nurseries. So we can take up a call when one comes out or we can offer uh, to, to go out. And, and I mean, these are great ways of, of encouraging and showing kids, you know, the next generation of students and employees, you know, maybe what they could do and how they could do it. Have you seen, um, I was in Edinburgh Airport the other day, and they have a, a massive wall, which is women in science. It's fantastic. I took a picture of it and put it up on, on social. I mean, there's Brilliant. like 40, 40 And did you see that there's a mirror at the end? No, I didn't. So as you work your way along from left to right, and you're looking at all these, uh, sort of like uh, framed photographs, yeah, right. isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And with, most with of them a, have an object or something yeah. that's relevant to their discipline. Mm -hmm. And as you get along to the end, and just at sort of adult eye height, there's a framed mirror. I missed that. And that is to allow any woman or girl that's looking along that line, suddenly they see, see themselves. themselves framed. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful touch. This is, I wonder whose idea that was. So it's a, um, a travelling exhibition. Oh, I wasn't expecting you to know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the Royal Society of Edinburgh has something to do with it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was I was walking to my gate and it just caught my eye because I go through that airport all the time and it's fairly it's a fairly new installation. So I stopped for a moment to have a look and take a picture of it. But no, I'm going to look at the mirror next time I'm in the airport. I mean, not that it's going to be relevant to me, but I want to see the mirror. Yeah, but maybe it could be a reminder to you that, you know, you can... You can engage more women on your podcast. Yeah, you can do your bit I've for visibility. Do, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the most uh, brilliant people I know in science are women, actually. So, uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you today. I mean, I feel like we, we could have done easy done another hour. And we're going to when you get back from Antarctica, because I can't wait to hear what that um, trip has been like and you know what you've learned and the people you've met there. Can I just say one thing about that? Sure. I know that we need to, to, to no, wrap absolutely. up, but um, one thing that I really do need to say is how proud I am to be going from Dundee to Antarctica, mm. because, you know, I see the discovery, the RRS discovery sitting in the dock uh, most a mile days. Or two away. Certainly every time I go to the train station, you know, it's right beside the, the beautiful new construction, the V&A uh, Design Museum. That uh, vessel took... Captain Scott and Shackleton and many others, including Ferrara geologists, who made measurements which we're still using in terms of our climate so assessments. We're using those as reference. Still using data wow. from the discovery that was built in Dundee and now sits, you know, uh, uh, as a memorial, as a museum in Dundee. And and the fact that I was born in Dundee and although I've worked all over the world, I'm now based in Dundee and I've been selected to go to Antarctica, just like 
the discovery. A, it's a beautiful piece of history that was selected. Yeah, I haven't been on the discovery for years. Probably, I don't know, maybe twenty years. I really need to go and go, go on it again. Maybe we should around. go there for the next podcast. Maybe. That would be amazing. We could take a walk around the Discovery and record inside it. Absolutely. And talk about Antarctica. And maybe in the, you know, in the captain's cabin or the dining room or something like that. That is, fan what a fantastic idea. Okay, that, that, that is definitely going to happen. When are you, when are you back? Um, so I'm there most of November, just into early December. So we should do it. Okay, like so into the new year. Into the new year. Perfect. And when Scott went to Antarctica, there was not any kind of um, thought that a woman could even be a part of well, the voyage. They didn't voyage. even like women on ships back then, did they? Well, no, they didn't like them it's on ships. Luck. And they certainly, <laughs> they certainly weren't um, considered as part of a crew. It's only in the last few decades that it's become possible and then maybe now normal for mm. women to go to Antarctica and to be part of research teams down there. I mean, if you think about the, the 60s and the 70s, there might have been one or two. But in 1901, when Scott nothing. went, the only female was the ship. Of course, yes. And so what a beautiful sort of circular new chapter for Dundee to be sending women in STEM, championing women in STEM from Dundee to Antarctica. So I'm just super delighted to have the opportunity. That's brilliant. Well, I've, I've had a fantastic time talking through all of this with you today. I, I've realized that there's a lot to learn. It's an area that, uh, well, you're talking about like your know, river restoration and naturalization is an area that has always fascinated me because I liked fish. <laughs> that was my sort of buy-in and interest in it. And I've spent a lot of time walking around rivers and looking at flies hatch and trying to work out where fish lie. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's great to speak to someone who's looking at the science behind how it happens and how we make it better. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, it's a pleasure. That's it for another two weeks. Thank you very much for listening once again. We would love it if you could go over and help support the show on Patreon. Check out the Pace Brothers on Patreon. Uh, but if you can't do that, there is another amazing way that you can help support us. Head over to whatever platform you listen to this on and leave us a review because it helps tremendously when other people are searching for podcasts uh, Then they have a greater chance of finding this one. And of course, if you have any suggestions, either for how we do the show or guests that we could have on, always love hearing from you. And we try and take all suggestions on board. In fact, you'll probably notice if you've been a long-term listener that this one was slightly different to ones we've done before, uh, where I actually inserted a bit of information where I thought it was relevant um, throughout the podcast. Hopefully not too much, Hopefully you felt that it, it really added to the show and didn't take anything away. Uh, but tell me how you feel about that. Contact us at podcast at paceproductionsuk.com or over on social media. I look forward to bringing you a new show in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>